This week on the Ocean Cruises podcast, we are speaking with Lowell Shepard from the YouTube sailing channel Pacific Solo and the Never Too Late Academy. Lowell has dedicated his life to the nonprofit sector, working to provide clean water to communities in need, amongst many other social and environmental projects. He is a successful author and speaker, as well as a fellow of the Royal Geographic Society and a master fundraiser. He now lives in Japan with his wife and is focused on his next challenge, which is crossing the Pacific Ocean in his gypsy. Lowell is also inspiring people through his Never Too Late Academy. If you want to follow Lowell's adventures, check out his YouTube channel, Pacific Solo. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, watch the interviews on YouTube, and download the audio and Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Right. Well, you know, starting right at the present, I call myself a never-too-later. Yeah. And that's kind of the theme of my my small YouTube channel. And that's the kind of viewers I attract, people like me. Um, but, you know, I've had a varied career. Uh, I've all, but there's some consistencies. Um, and uh, so how should I answer the question? Um, you know, as a youngster, I dreamed of having a sailboat. And I dreamed of adventure. And I dreamed of travel. And I dreamed of doing good and exciting things. And started to sail dinghies when I was uh, in my early teens. Um, but I followed in the footsteps of my father, who was a minister. So I trained in theology, um, quickly realized that I didn't like people enough to be in charge of a parish or a church. Uh, I was kind of impatient with people's problems, uh, at, at, at younger. And so the, and then, so I was shaped by two things. I was shaped by obviously some some faith-based stuff, which has evolved over the years, and particularly in the area of liberation theology, and, and also shaped by the hippie movement. I was came at the back end of that. And so, you know, it, make love, not war, flower power, you know, peace, man, and all of that. And That's so that led me, those two influences then led me into the nonprofit sector. And so most of my Adult life has been spent leading nonprofit organizations, uh, and and the and there's been many, and I've been involved in startups. But the consistent one is a sustainable development agency, providing clean water to remote and poor communities, and certainly that is the most satisfying thing in my life to see the difference that provision of clean water provides to others. Along the way, I've been entrepreneurial, although even most of my businesses have been seemed like not for profit as well. Um, and also, I've authored a number of books with a British publisher. I'm not famous. I'm not a bestseller. But each time my publisher, if I pitch an idea, they seem to like it. And I sold just enough books to make it financially worth their while. And... And so part of that, and so I've always also believed in adventures with purpose of leveraging life's experiences, not only to benefit oneself, but to benefit others. And so a key moment in my life was when I was 12 years old and I heard about the Miles for Millions walk 
where we lived in Winnipeg, Manitoba, uh, to raise money for the people of Haiti who chronically have had disasters, et cetera. And I, I believe it had just been an earthquake, but it wasn't the cause that attracted me. It was the, the question as a 12 year old, could I walk 35 miles, like 50 kilometers? Could I do that? And so I signed up and then found out I also had to raise money uh, for Haiti and get so many sponsors per mile, et cetera. Well, I did it. And I found that not only was I deeply um, uh, you know, gratified by the walk itself, I proved I could do it, but also I realized I can have a, an adventure and a challenge and leverage it to help others as well. And so that really is what pushed me into not just the nonprofit world, but endurance challenges, sponsor challenges, and gradually kind of raised up the ante. And then when I, when I moved to Japan, so as a Canadian, I was born and raised in Canada. I had this romantic notion of living in England and becoming a writer. So when I was married in 1980, the deal with my wife was, if you go with me to England, one day I'll go, to you, with, go with you to Japan, where she was born and raised. She's actually a Canadian, but born and raised there. So we went to England, um, got involved in nonprofit there, started to write books. And then when we moved to Japan, when my wife said, it's my turn in 1996, uh, number one, I gave up the idea and the dream of ever owning a sailboat and sailing because I thought Japan and living on the boat because I thought Japan was too expensive language was too opaque but also i took up bicycling when i came to japan and i bought a bike a mountain bike um and then i got this notion to ride my bicycle the length of japan during cherry blossom season because during cherry blossom season the japanese come out of themselves and they party underneath the cherry blossom trees, yeah. drink sake, eat sushi. And I thought, and, and the weather man actually, and the weather woman actually report how the cherry blossom front is moving up the archipelago over six weeks. So everybody's waiting for the cherry blossoms to arrive in their city where for four or five days they can party under the blossoms. And I thought, wouldn't it be great to be in that window for six weeks? And so I pitched it at my publisher. I'd like to write a book about the changing spiritualities of Japan, drawing on my kind of theological background. And um, they agreed. And they paid for a bicycle to be made for me and all my expenses. And it was fantastic in so many ways, not least being that I'd never done something like that before. And it was transformative. Um, and in terms of the book, when I rode through Kyushu, uh, because that's where Christianity arrived in Japan, I wrote about Christianity's roots in Japan. I then rode Shikoku, where the 88 temple Buddhist pilgrimage is. So I wrote about Buddhism in Japan. I got to the big island Honshu, 
And there I began to encounter accidentally people from the new religions, uh, which is quite big in Japan. And then by the time I got to Hokkaido, the book was just all about me and my inner journey and it changed me. Um, and meanwhile, I had started this NGO in Japan and I used that bike ride to raise money for it. And I'd started another business, started a film business with my son, who's a film director. Um, and so I'm dabbling in all of these things. But then for many years, I was longing to do another challenge that was equally transformative and spiritual in texture as that 3,000 kilometer bike ride up the length of Japan. And, you know, I did triathlons, I did hill climbs on my bicycle, I did bicycle, I led bicycle groups across Cambodia, where some of our well projects are and included Tiger Country. Um, uh, I did a hundred kilometer walk one day. Uh, it actually was eight, an 18 hour day, but nothing compared to that chasing the cherry blossom bike ride. Until I then rediscovered sailing. And what I, the dream I'd given up of one day owning a boat, living on it and sailing an ocean, um, I realized I found an English speaking sailing club where I could take the course and write the exam for my boat operator's license, which you need in Japan for a boat with an engine, anything over two horsepower. And of course, a big sailboat, you need a, an engine to get it in out, out of the marina. Um, and it was going to, I thought the exam was only in Japanese and, it, and the course was about $4,000, but this English sailing club could do it for $700 and they had an agreement with the government, I, we could write the exams in English. So I got my boat operator's license and then realized that this wasn't as opaque as I thought, nor as expensive. And so I began to crew on boats. And then I just came up with this idea that I'm going to buy a sailboat in Japan. I'm going to live on it. And I'm going to sail across the Pacific Ocean by myself through the great Pacific garbage patch. It kind of came in two or three minutes of step by step like that. And I don't know how it is for you, Andy, but for me, you know, dreams or goals, particularly audacious goals, come in a variety of forms. And there's, for me, there's two types. There's a type that come that is immediately robust. It's strong. You can blurt it out. You know you're going to do it. And everybody who knows you, yeah, Andy's going to do that. They know you well enough. But then there's other ideas or dreams that come that are fragile and you kind of look in the mirror and say, really, like, really, are you gonna do that? Are you just kind of shitting yourself or, or is this for real? So I took some time to question, like really, are you, first of all, are you willing to take the risks? Are you willing, not just the physical risks of being solo on the ocean and I'm a novice sailor, but also the financial risks, uh, you're doing this later in life, et cetera. And then also ask, why do you really want to do this? 
And I realized I wanted to do it for a lot of different reasons. Um, and the, this kind of goes back to the, to the hippie in me, I suppose, the more esoteric and spiritual. I, there's just something that really draws me to, to the solitude of being in the middle of the ocean. And I learned of a set of coordinates in the South Pacific called Point Nemo, which is the set of coordinates given to a location on Earth that's furthest from land in any direction. Some mathematician in Europe, I think it was in Amsterdam, just was curious one day, I wonder where the point on Earth is that's furthest from land in any direction. So he found these coordinates. And according to sailors and mariners, they say that, that it's, it's kind of lifeless there because it's so far from river runoff and nutrients. And it also turns out where Russia and America and other countries bury space debris. That's where they, I think there's like 200 different satellites and things buried there because it's, it's least likely to hit anybody or, or anything. So I was fascinated with that. And then I thought, I wonder where in the North Pacific is the furthest from land in any direction. And I found it. And I called it Nemo North. And I realized it's really that that really drew me deep inside that before I die, I just want to go there. And like the French philosopher, Immanuel Kant to say, the French or German, who said that nothing strikes more reverence and awe than looking up and looking within. So I'm adding a third of that. I want to look up and consider the expanse above, the mysteries within, and the terrors below. Um, and so I realized I want to do that. And boring the words of somebody else, the fear, I've always wanted to sail across an ocean. I've always been terrified at the thought. But now the fear of not doing it is greater than the fear of doing it. But then I had to come up on, with a plan because I'm not wealthy. I'm from the nonprofit sector. I had a, a small nest egg and I've been transparent about it. It's about 150,000 Canadian dollars, which is about 130,000 US. And I knew that would not be enough. I began to shop for boats and I realized that this could not be a retirement hobby for me. This had to be a business. And that's one of the things I coach my fellow Never Too Laters on. You kind of have to make that decision. Uh, if you've got a mountain of cash, then of course, fund it. Uh, but if you don't, then you, to make it sustainable, you have to approach this in a more business-like way. So that's what I've that's what I've done from the beginning. I, I, I was surprised the URL pacificsolo.com was available. So I grabbed that up, had a logo designed and decided to leverage my 55 years of fundraising experience because I started when I was 12 with um, leverage that for this new project. And uh, even before my YouTube channel hit a thousand subscribers, I'd already procured 107,000 US dollars in cash sponsorship. 
and 20,000 of that even before I started the, the YouTube channel. So I've, I've kind of gone a different path. I've always known that I, my channel would probably never be big um, because I know there's some old guys who do have sizable channels like uh, the Adventures of the Sea Dog, for example. I mean, his are his are wonderful, um, but you know I'm 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 lousy on camera, I I'm quirky, um, and I'm not I'm not a DIY guy. So I approach all this in, in Japanese. They call it shoshin. It's a it's the Buddhist word for beginner's mind. That I just assume that everybody else knows more than I do. So rather than me telling people what to do on my channel, I usually say I've got a problem and how do you solve this? Um, now I've, I've waffled on and kind of brought in a lot of strands together, but that's, that's, uh, that's where I am now. So I, I, I might, when I was 64, I then declared at my birthday party, three things. Once I'd considered this dream of Pacific solo, I then announced three announcements. Number one, I was going to find a replacement to run the NGO. And it was the board had to find them. And we found this guy who's sterling and knows Japanese much better than I. Secondly, I was going to return to reading and uh, writing and speaking uh, in the area of business ethics and CSR, et cetera. Because I've been an informal consultant to companies on, you know, ethical giving and ethical expenditure. And then thirdly, I announced I'm going to buy a boat, learn how to sail her, and sail across an ocean before I'm 70 years old. So I'm 67 now. Last year, having been on the boat for two years, by the way, my wife lives on land. She's very supportive of me. I helped her realize her dream to move back to Japan. And she lives in a solar powered log house that we designed together on a mountainside. And she's, she loves it. Now she's okay, your turn, you go and realize your dream. So um, I bought a boat, lived on it. It's uh, in a marina not too far from where I am now because I'm actually at my son's apartment in Tokyo and the lighting wasn't good enough to be outside to show you. Uh, but just kind of 10 minutes by car from here is a marina called Yuminoshima. Yuminoshima means island of dreams. Okay. And this particular island was built on landfill, all garbage. So it's kind of a nice metaphor. Uh, and I lived there for two years. And then in March, 2021, I thought, you know, with Corona and pandemic, and it's hard to go see my aging mother in Canada because part of my dream is to also one of my compelling images is not only to be in the middle of the ocean by myself and contemplate for a few seconds these themes, but then to arrive into Canada and have my mother greet me. She's yeah. 92, she has dementia. And I thought, man, time is ticking. She's losing more of her memory. Um, I can't fly there, quarantine rules. And so I actually terminated my contract at the marina, March, 2021. I was going to do a test run to Okinawa, five days nonstop, to see if the boat and I were ready, and then come back in April and leave for Canada. 
Well, on my way to Okinawa, I realized the boat and I were not ready. And my shore team and all of my sponsors. And by that point in time, the history TV channel had also approached me. I didn't approach them asking if they could do a documentary on me called Dare to Dream. And I wasn't going to be paid for it as reality TV. And so I, I phoned them up, phoned the sponsors up, and I said, you know, I kind of got a third of the way to Okinawa. I had to divert. The boat's not ready. I'm not ready. I didn't even have auto helm. So it was a bit foolhardy to launch out. And uh, without exception, they were all relieved. So we're so glad. Go back to your goal of doing it by the time you're 70. And so, um, so now, instead, I'm on a training voyage around Japan. I've been sailing and cruising full time in Jap Japan's oceans. I've just recently completed the circumnavigation of Kyushu and crossed from the Japan Sea into the Seto Inland Sea through a high traffic, very fast moving channel. It's about, uh, it's about eight nautical miles, 15, 16 kilometers, um, which in high, which in certain tidal conditions, the current can be 10 knots. So you have to really time it in a sailboat. Um, so I just completed that last week, and um, and now I've left my boat in Kyushu for a few days because History Channel, when I decided not to go across the ocean this year, they then came back a few months later and said, well, we'd like to do a kind of a travel series featuring you, still call it Dare to Dream, of you as a foreigner rookie sailor. Uh, learning the sail by visiting remote Japanese islands. And so we filmed the pilot uh, last month, and now they want me to do the voiceover in studio this coming week. And again, I'm not being paid for that, but, but hopefully it's going to help my channel and uh, uh, boost subscribers. So that kind of brings you up to the present. And that's why I'm in Tokyo in my son's apartment. Right, so that is your life. That's been interesting, hasn't it? Um, all right, let's just go back to the beginning on that because there's quite a lot of cool stuff to talk about there. So your first um, stint at raising money for charity, like NGO type of stuff, that was in Haiti when you were 12. That, that was for Haiti, but it was in Winnipeg, Manitoba. Right, where right. Where I did the walk. Haiti was, I didn't even know where... It was what it was, the spelling, and it came as a shock to me. I had to raise money for this place I knew nothing about. But that triggered an interest and brought some enlightenment to, to me. There's people suffering in the world. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't take much for me to do something to help them. Yeah, true. Yeah. I mean, especially in like these, I mean, there's people suffering everywhere. You know, there's people suf suffering from earthquakes in Japan and, you know, Japan is a relatively prosperous uh, country, I suppose you'd say. Um, but yeah, I mean, when you're talking about places like Haiti, it's like not a lot of money by your standards at the time would really go a long way there. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, you like started to realize that at a really early age. I mean, 12, you know, most people go through adult life not really understanding what the world's about. So um, yeah, that was pretty interesting. It was a it was a rite of passage of sorts. I kind of grew up a little bit. 
feeling that I that with every opportunity, I would also have a responsibility. Yeah. Um, and so and years later, in fact, when I got to Japan, I started a non-registered NGO called Adventures with Purpose. And, and that's when I organized bicycle rides in Cambodia and elsewhere and some informal triathlons, etc. cetera, um, by saying, if you want to be part of this adventure, you got to raise some money for others, pay your own expenses and raise money for others. Yeah, yeah, it's a really good model, yeah. So like, okay, so you did, the, the first thing you did was raising money for Haiti. Um, then you you said you got into uh, providing clean water to um, communities. What what was that exactly? Was that like in a lot of that happens in Africa? Was that in Africa? So that that was in Africa, but also Asia. And Asia. by this point, I had I had uh, gone to college. I'd started to, you know, one of my other dreams was to be a pilot, a kind of a bush pilot. So. After I did some, I, I went to Mexico for a year as the second pilot with an aviation NGO taking doctors and dentists up into the, to the mountains. I, I quickly lost that desire because I got airsick so much. Um, but when I got back to Canada, again, with my lust for adventure, I was phoned up by this new NGO uh, saying, we need somebody to go to Thailand to help set up a supplementary feeding program in the refugee camps. This was in 1978. So, you know, after the Vietnam War, et cetera. And uh, I thought, great, you know, I get, I've never been to Asia before. So again, it was that sense of adventure with this 12 year old, you know, leftover feeling and now the hippie influence and liberation theology saying, yeah, and it, it helps people and to live in a war zone would be kind of, interesting and challenging. So I did that when I came back with that agency, which was a young one called Hope International Development Agency. I then worked for them in Canada and worked in advocacy, uh, appearing in media and speaking at rotaries, churches, et cetera, lobbying Canada to lift its immigration quotas and let refugees in, et cetera. So then I went to England and worked for this other NGO and began to write books. Then when I moved to Japan with my wife as part of the deal, my colleagues in Canada said, come back and work for us again. And I said, well, I'm in Japan. I promised my wife I'd be here. I'll see if I can raise some money. By this time, Hope International become really known and focused as a water agency. And so then that was in the year 2000. And then I began to visit our project areas in Cambodia, Ethiopia, and the Philippines, and saw what a remarkable difference access to clean water makes. I mean, it's stating the obvious, we all know that, but it, to see, like, see the lift it gives, thinking of the many families who are now my friends in Cambodia, who once they get access to clean water, within a year, they're out of extreme poverty mm. because they, they're healthier. Uh, so they have more energy to produce. They have more time because they're not having to walk long distances in dry season to fetch water. And thirdly, now they're growing not just enough food for themselves, but 
but surplus where they can sell in the market. So now they have real cash income. And um, it just became, and so that's why I got into the water thing. And then Ethiopia was more community village water systems because you're dealing with clans and tribes there. And we'd cap springs in the mountain and then run pipelines down to these elongated villages. Um, some pipelines were 20, 25 kilometers long. And the aim was to get a water point, a faucet and a sink within a 15 minute walk of everybody in the village. So we would have maybe 50, 60, 70 water points in these you know, stretched out villages. And, it's, and with hope, the reason I stuck with them and I actually helped them start in England as well and out of Japan, we also started Singapore and Hong Kong and New Zealand and Australia's funding places. And the reason I stuck with hope all those years and I'm still on the board and I'm still a volunteer uh, and I still support is because we're just very concerned with outcomes and we're not good at fundraising. If we're, if, if we're criticized for something that's usually on the fundraising side or marketing website sucks or you don't send enough emails or whatever, but we're so concerned with outcomes on the ground in a way that preserves the dignity of the poor. So our mission statement is to help the neglected poor become self-reliant. And when there's a money flow, you know, money has power and strings attached. So if you're the giver of the money, you have to work doubly, triply hard to make sure that that money flow does not usurp local power, dignity, individuality, self-determination. So we spend the, we put a high value on listening and making sure you know, the, the way a project's gonna be sustainable is by local ownership. Mm -hmm. if, I, if I offer you something, you'll see me as Santa Claus and say, thank you. You may or may not use that, say it's a book. Here's a free copy of my book. In fact, I'll send you a copy of one of my books, Andy. And you may or may not read it. But if you say, I need to read that book, will you help me get it? Then you're owning, you know, again, stating the obvious. So long answer to a short question. Uh, I just realized how water is so critical for, the, for beginning the journey towards self-reliance. And yeah. I'd, I'd often ask families the Western question, what's your dream? What's your goals? And without exception, when you ask somebody living in extreme poverty, like it's just, it's an alien concept. The eyes yeah. glaze over like it's feeding my kid today would be my you know, paraphrase. But within a year of them getting the well, they're full of ideas and plans. Kids to college, businesses, building a new house. And you know, one of the things that happens early on, I noticed is that within months, there's flowers in their yard, in their garden. And when you're desperate, the aesthetic side of life is irrelevant. 
Yeah. But as you acquire confidence that you're in charge of your own life, you enjoy beauty, you enjoy, and I'm enjoying the, uh, the abstracts behind you. Um, I think we have a similar taste in art. Um, but the homeless don't. I mean, that, that I shouldn't, that's a vast generalization. Anyways, I'm waffling on and. Oh yeah, I, I get what you mean, yeah. So just like, I mean, obviously you've been doing this for many, many years when it comes to like providing clean water to communities or families that don't get it. Um, and a lot has been done with this, but what, what would you say roughly a number is when it comes to like how many families or how many people still don't have access to clean, healthy water? Is it millions, tens of millions? Yeah, certainly probably hundreds of millions. Uh, and I don't know the number. Right. Uh, I know numbers are bandied around. What I can say is that, well, well, the Millennium Development Goals got us a long way, and now the SDGs are taking us further, where we saw a lot of people come out of extreme poverty. Through the pandemic, poverty levels have risen worldwide again. Hmm. Um, so it's still a major problem. There's still, I would say, hundreds of millions who still don't have access to clean water. What I am more knowledgeable about is the localities where we work, because I think what is debilitating for some people is they think of the global and, you know, it's pessimism sets in. Mm -hmm. Nothing I do can make a difference. Yeah, it's too big. Uh, right? And, and, and it's natural to feel that way. Whereas I focus in on the local, and I know in the Vilveng district of Persat province of the, of the uh, country of Cambodia, there are still X number of people who don't have access to clean water. I also know that in certain provinces and districts in Southern Ethiopia, before we went in, and these are populations of maybe 50 to 100,000 people in these localities, when we went in, single digit had access to clean water and now high double digit, if not 80, 90% have access to clean water through our efforts. So I tell people, but you, it's an old adage. It can sound cheap and shallow. The fact is we each can make a difference by targeting our giving through an NGO we trust and have relationship with. And yeah. that's the issue is find, find an entity that you trust and that you can hold accountable. Yeah, and that's difficult as well. Like even the concept of charity these days, it's like you give money to a charity. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to name any. And, um, you know, out of that dollar or that pound, how much actually goes to people who need it? how much goes to a consultant <laughs> or a political favor. Do you know what I mean? Like it's, uh, it's something that you need to spend a lot of time thinking about and a lot of time researching, trying to figure out, okay, if I do raise this money, where, where am I going to send it? And you know, how much of it is actually going to help people who need it or just people who, um, people who want it. 
Um, right, okay. I mean, it's, you know, when it comes to like that type of stuff, I just think taking everything like right back to as small a level as possible is going to be best. But I think that about everything, to be honest, I don't think like the concept of massive governments and world governments is a great idea. I'm really not that into that type of thing. Um, but especially when it comes to like charity and helping communities, I like, wouldn't it just be so much better if you got, you know, your average town in the West, like I'm from a place called Wigan. So let's say Wigan. Right, okay. I mean, it's probably some probably some places in Wigan that aren't that clean, really. <laughs> um, but if, if you just made it more of like a one-to-one -one effort, you know, let's just have like a sister village or a sister town or, you know, brother village, whatever, yeah. um, in Ethiopia, for example. And, you know, let's try and raise 60 grand or 120 grand locally but if it was actually managed like by councils and governments that way so you know people like you um although i'm sure you've enjoyed it and you've loved it um people like you and your work actually just aren't needed anymore because the yeah. people who are meant to protect us actually do protect us you know, and do help um i mean it would be great if it didn't take you know people to uh, solve these problems if you know like the collective group of people who we choose to uh, save the world <laughs> uh, actually did that um so yeah i've i've had like a social idea uh i i mean you, you'll you know way more about this so you can tell me if it's actually practical or if it, if it would even work but like uh, most countries in the west give a lot of money by i don't know what you know whatever percentage of like your budget is going to be for the year to um you know they put it in like a foreign aid box where they will give you know a billion here two billion there a billion there that yep. type of thing some of these donations are pretty questionable i mean I, I remember like in the uk the government were there was something in the house of commons i can't remember if it was a debate or if they were just talking about it um but they sent like a hell of a lot of money to pakistan which is without a doubt a corrupt country like on, a, on a government level. And they've got a space program. They've got a lot of weapons. It's like, okay, I don't think that's entirely necessary. When you've got people that, you know, you're highlighting that still don't have access to what should be a basic international human right at this stage. Uh, and I think everybody should sign on to that. You know, wouldn't it just be better if like these governments said, okay, we're not going to be in charge of this because there is there's too much that isn't transparent and that's not good um but we will just put local communities in charge of it and if they said okay you know four percent of the annual budget or the annual revenue for the government in the uk is going towards foreign aid you take that four percent manage it locally and make it small project stuff you know like build a water well here um do a dam there that type of stuff i mean do you think something like that could work or is the system just too well, well, I, yeah, I mean, I think what resonates with me is the more local the expenditure and the money flow, the more efficient it is. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, I'm a realist. You know, we, you know, we have the United Nations, we have our national governments. They need to do what they do, but there's always strings attached with government money. Always strings attached, and there's usually strings attached with corporate money. And I, I know that game a little bit of, yeah. of, of how you know, the strings that come and how you have to be very careful. Even for my current project, I've been very selective with the companies who are supporting me that the strings that are attached 
I'm comfortable with. Um, and certainly, you know, at a at a civic versus a statewide or national level, you know, the more local the politician is, the more seemingly accountable they are. I remember when the earthquake and tsunami happened in Japan and one of our donors gave us, he phoned me up uh, 12 hours later and said, Lowell, we want you and Hope to get up there. And I said, well, we're an overseas development agency. We're not an emergency aid agency and we're outside our mandate if we do that. He said, Lowell, we're all outside our mandate. You know, every company in Japan is outside our mandate. So our company just had a board meeting. And we're going to give you a million dollars into your account on Monday because we trust you to get up and spend it through the whole protocol, etc. So mm -hmm. great. We didn't have to do any fundraising for that. In the end, they gave two and a half million dollars over the next couple of weeks. But when we started to do our research and survey and the federal government wanted nothing to do with us, then you had the prefectural, which would be the provincial state or county using English terms. And then you had city. It was only at the city level where like local mayors and council people said, we need this and we need this now. They were the real heroes. And, yeah. and in the prefectural, the county offices, aid was being stockpiled. So I think you have, you have a good point. Um, my, my belief about our individual responsibility is that we're all so uniquely placed that there's some things that only Lowell can do and some things only that Andy can do skill sets can be shared and some networks can be shared, but ultimately you're in a position in your world and your network of relationships and your life experiences, there's things that only you can do. And so you have a responsibility to make a choice. Will I do those or not? So whether it's because you befriended a homeless guy on the street or because you know a certain person in power who trusts your perspective on things, um, we, we must all obey our conscience and not diffuse responsibility. No, this is something that Lowell can do. And that's why with bike rides and, you know, with Pacific Solo, I'm not raising money for charity at the moment. When I do my eventual crossing of the ocean, then I'm going to bring in the charity side, but I, I'm not evoking charity for what I'm doing is, is a business. Uh, Cause I have to fund this somehow. Um, but at some point I'm going to be in a position to be able to leverage that um, to, to help others. So your, your idea is a sound idea. And I do think, Ultimately, it's people helping people through whatever mechanism or structure, the closer the relationship you and I can have to make a difference, the better. Because it's eyeball to eyeball, it's accountability, it's transparency, and it's learning from each other. And that's what in our NGO we try to do with our local partners, which, by the way, in Canada, 
they get 95 cents on the dollar to the projects overseas. Oh, nice. When I shared that number with Japanese businessmen here and where the NGO world is still small, they said, if that's the case, we're not going to support hope. And I said, why? Thinking they'd like it. He said, because there's no way you can keep your organization here sustainable by only taking a nickel off the dollar. That was my word. They didn't say nickel. And they said, really, you should be spending 30 to 35% because we want to know you're going to be around 20 years from now. We don't want to give to something that's going to go bankrupt. So that kind of brought an interesting perspective. Yeah, that's true, though. Yeah, I mean, it's, well, it's like when you look at uh, some of the larger like, international organizations as well, it's like the only reason why they are large and international and you know them is because they spend a lot of money on marketing. So that's yeah. not necessarily going towards, you know, putting a roof on someone's shelter, but it's necessary. Otherwise, you wouldn't know about it and they would never get help. Yeah. Yeah. I know my friends and I, my colleagues and I in Hope years ago were looking at another Canadian organization they raised about 10 times as much money as we did each year. We were 20 million a year. They were 200 million a year. Their overheads were 35% because of that very reason, big marketing departments. And we thought, you know, 35% of $200 million is a lot more money than 95% of $20 million. Yeah. It helps more people. So maybe we should be like them. And then we thought, well, let them be them, but our DNA is different. Yeah, and I think it depends on the people in the organization as well. You know, like if they are more like-minded as as you are, where you want to be involved and you want to have more, you know, like one-to-one personal connections, then run it that way. You know, it's helping people at the end of the day. So, you know, don't worry so much on those details, you know, just help. Yeah. All right. So that is probably the biggest part of your life, without a doubt. Um, When it came to moving to Japan and then specifically, um, I'd say on the bike ride, because that's like a pretty interesting thing to talk about. Um, What really made you want to do that? Because that's not, you know, a simple 10K. Um, That is like quite a hell of an experience. (laughs) What drove you into that? Similar to the question at age 12, could I do that? I mean, the, the initial idea, I was writing a, a, a master's dissertation on, on the changing spiritualities of Japan. Hence, the book came out of that. And I realized an ideal time to interview the Japanese was when they were drunk under the cherry blossoms. Right, uh, because okay. the Japanese are usually quite reserved. They have what they call inner face, outer face. And in public, it's always outer face. And it's seldom you can get into the heart. So so that was the original idea to just interview people for six weeks and enjoy the cherry blossoms. But from an endurance point of view, could I do that? Like, it was scary for me. I hadn't, I hadn't ridden long distance before. And even the <clears throat> question, could I change a flat tire? frightened me and uh so for two years before after i decided to do it 
I dream about it at night. I fret about it. I go to sleep planning it. I imagine myself cycling up you know, little forested roads. And then that's why I said when I did the bike ride at the end of it, it was all very introspective. Like yeah. I did it, like it changed me. So uh, and uh, it prompted another book, which had been brewing for some time, which I wrote called Boys Becoming Men. Because I developed this interest and this theory about masculinity and Western culture that with some, ex sub some subculture exceptions, we lack a puberty rite of passage. Yeah. A defining moment when a boy is welcomed into adulthood. And it was the, and that book that I wrote was one of the hardest books I wrote because you're dealing in very, uh, you're delving into very difficult areas in which could be interpreted as sexism. And, you know, the female gender, male gender. Um, and now we have a you know, variety of other genders. We have to be sensitive and delicate in the way we address and speak of them. Uh, but I was writing as a father and as an academic, because I was raising two boys and I looked at my own life. And, and this was really prompted after reading Nelson Mandela's autobiography and his circumcision chapter was quite captivating um, because at age 15, they were not only circumcised, but they were circumcised as part of a rite of passage from boyhood to adulthood. And that I realized that, you know, when does a boy in Western culture realize he's a man? And, you know, I'll, I'll just be upfront and graphic. Is it, you know, when, is a boy become a man when he has his first wet dream, sex for the first time, graduate from high school, uh, driver's license, first job, gets married, child, and the word adolescence is a is only a century old word. Uh, Arnold van Ennep, a uh, German anthropologist, invented it to describe this window between childhood and adulthood, and then American marketers introduced the word teenager after the war as a marketing concept. And this gap got wider and wider and wider. And I looked at myself and realized, you know, there's some things in me, I'm still striving for the approval of my dad, mm. of older men. Like, I'm not sure I've been to that rite of passage. So that was part of the whole, so I grew up, but at age 12, that was partly like, oh, I have a responsibility when I have an adventure. I grew up a little bit. And then that 3,000 mile ride really changed me. Like it increased my confidence, not just in my physical stamina and that I had a strong perseverance muscle. I think the perseverance muscle gets stronger with age as a personal theory. Um, mm -hmm. I realized I can do things. Um, so it was, 
it was transformative, as I said. And that's why for years afterwards, I then did many other physical challenges, but nothing was like that one until this one with Pacific yeah. Solo. Now I'm dreaming about it, worrying about it, fretting about it. It's audacious high stakes and more so than the bike ride. And that's yeah, got me. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a hell of a thing to do. Definitely like a rite of passage um, type of activity for sure. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's very difficult today to, I mean, you know, I, I suppose like a hundred years ago, the, a marker would be, you know, for a, a teenager or, or a young boy, whatever, becoming a man would be something probably quite similar. I imagine they would have said, you know, once you get married or have kids or something like that. But societies are so different now. Like, even if you just look within a country, like if you look at the way somebody grows up in an inner city compared to the suburbs, compared to rural areas, they've just got so completely different lives. Yeah. Um, and it would be really difficult to do, even for, like, if you just take America, for example, if you look at America like 100 years ago, no matter if you had, you know, a teenager or a 16-year-old in you know, just outside of New York or Ohio or Delaware or, you know, Texas, wherever, it's probably had a similar life. They had a similar set of luxuries available to them, which wasn't that much. Um, and their, you know, leisure activity was probably the same. Go play outside, uh, go for a bike ride, go sit in a park. People just are completely different now. Um, like even, even, you know, people you'd imagine would be quite similar lead completely different lives. And I think it would be um, really difficult to pin that down. I think it's when you have kids. I think when you have kids mm -hmm. and you have a house and uh, no offense to people who don't have kids, because you, you know, you can accept responsibility in a lot of different ways, but this is just my personal experience. It's like, I realized I wasn't a grown up until I was responsible for another person that I had to turn into a grown up. And then I was like, shit, I need to grow up. Um, and that's when I started growing up, <laughs> not, yeah. not from the perspective of not knowing what I was doing, but knowing where you need to go. And I think that's a completely different thing. You only realize it when you have a massive amount of responsibility. You have, you have one or two. You have, how many children Kids. do you have? One. Right. A boy? Boy. He's just, he's turning three in a couple oh. of weeks. Right. Yeah, I yeah, call him an angel and a demon. He's uh, he's the most wonderful thing in the world, and then he's the most horrible thing in my life, depending on yeah. what he's vomiting, where he's taking a shit. Um, yeah, it's just the way kids are. They're beautiful and horrendous at the same time. And and of course, you've heard it many times and know it, but they grow. the The years go by quickly. Yeah. It's, you know, it's so strange, like we, me and my wife, it's nice now because, you know, every, everybody can just video the kids so easily. There's no, I, there's no videos or even that many photos of when I was a child. My parents told me I was horrible, but I don't believe them. I think maybe they're just saying that to try and pull something over me. Um, but my kid's quite challenging. So he's, he's got it from somewhere. I know that. Um, but it's nice, like you can just pull out a phone and video your kid, and we we, yeah. we do it all the time. We just sit down and look through these videos and go, "Oh, wasn't he nice? Oh, wasn't he nice?" Um, less of those moments now. It's definitely becoming more challenging. <laughs> but it's nice, you know. It's good to um, it's good to look back. We, you know, we were doing it yesterday. We he used to have really long curly hair, and we've cut it a little bit short now, so he looks like a bit more like a boy. Um, but yeah, I mean, the rite of passage for him 
I don't know what that's going to be. I think we might send him out on his own. I think we might get him like a 24-foot little old cruiser and be like, right, go across the Atlantic. <laughs> and then when he gets to the other side, I'll give you your first beer, maybe. Yeah. Well, in the book I wrote, Boys Becoming Men, I studied puberty rites of passage in various cultures and tribes okay. and discovered, you know, I, I took everything I learned to basically there's three elements to a puberty rite of passage, which I called props. And I used prop as a metaphor. A prop is both a theatrical instrument that gives an illusion of something dramatic, but a prop is also something on a boat or an airplane that propels forward. And so a puberty rite of passage, a prop, is both those things. It, it, it's something as a point of reference that brings a bit of magic into our lives, but also it propels us forward. So I, so I advocated mini props. And in, in props, there's three elements. I call it the ABCs of a prop. There's adventure. So there's always a challenge aspect. There is belief where there's a transference of values and worldview. And thirdly, there's a ceremony or ritual. And, and so with my own boys growing up, they were my guinea pigs starting at age 10, as I knew they were gonna to start to transfer into adolescence, we then had a series of mini props. And, and both when they were both 15, we climbed Mount Fuji together because there's something about, and, and we, we combined all the ABCs in that one challenge. It was an adventure, an endurance adventure. Uh, all the way up, we talked about the challenges of life and you know when there's less oxygen, less resources, and you get headaches and you don't want to go on. And then at the top, we had a ceremony. Um, my boys never talk about it, so maybe it had no influence on them at all. Yeah, but you know, it's one of those things when they have their kids and they're thinking about that, then they will remember yes. that. And then they will True. understand how important it actually was for them growing up. Um, True. You know, there's certain things my parents did at the time that just pissed me off. Now I look back and I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm probably a slightly better I get it. <laughs> because of those things. <laughs> yes, yeah, so that makes sense. So just before we start talking a bit more about the sailing and what you're doing there, the books that you've written, what's the best way for people to find these is it like an amazon search or a google search what would you recommend yeah amazon search and i'm not in the business of flogging books anymore um and uh but i on the if you search my name lowell shepherd on amazon you'll get chasing the cherry blossom you'll see boys becoming men uh, boys becoming men is also in french a uh, french publisher bought the rights two years ago, even though it's a 20-year-old okay. book. Uh, then Chasing the Cherry Blossom also is in Japanese, if any Japanese are watching. And then my most recent book, um, which is now a few years old, Never Too Late. And that went into four languages, Russian, Portuguese, and French. And uh, that book has become, I'm, I've reread that, that's become my manual for this uh, and has become my mantra now. And where my buddies and my followers, some of them call themselves never too laters. So, yeah, but on Amazon, it's the best. Right. Okay. So just talk about it, the, the Never Too Late Academy. Like, what is this and how are you 
looking to influence people of this and what you want, what do you want to get out of it? Well, I began to have lots of people write me um, asking for advice and because they know I'm a novice sailor and, and a lot of my videos and, and blog entries are about how you navigate fear, how you navigate risk. Um, and then, and then more and more people were asking. And then I thought, some people say, you should just do videos just about that. Well, I don't want to pollute Pacific Solo. Pacific Solo is, has an undercurrent of never too late, but it's, a, it's meant to be a sailing channel. Um, so I started a separate channel called Never Too Late Academy. And then I realized, again, my time is precious, meaning it's limited. Right, anything that's rare or limited is precious. And so again, in the spirit that I've got to, on one hand, I wanna help people and I, and I wanna be helped by people. At the same time, I, this has to be more than a hobby, it has to be a business. So I formally started a company called Never Too Late Academy. I took all the lessons I've learned in 55 years of fundraising which I then used to start Pacific Solo recruit sponsors. I then used that same principle to go out and recruit four investors. Uh, and they're in with me and they're active investors who are uh, helping me grow it. And uh, so it, it is a business, although we're just launching now uh, because we wanted the videos to be available to as many people as possible We've decided rather than a per video cost, there will be uh, access to the entire site. Because we probably now have maybe 70, 80 hours of video instruction on a whole variety of topics, including, and it's only things I've learned, and this is how I did it. So for fellow Never Too Laters, you know, I, I built a community, but I've been doing that for years for hope. And so I had to learn Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. And I just kind of give, this is how you get started. And this is how you monetize. It's, it's all information you can get anyways by going to the individual sites, but it's a, you know, a dummy proof kind of manual through to how, how do you craft together a pitch deck for sponsors? How do you mitigate risk with your own money? So now we're going to, you can be a lifetime access, 12-month access, or a 30-day access uh, to all of that, but also realizing people are asking for coaching. So now we're setting up a group coaching scheme as well, um, where I will actually take people through my five rules of fundraising. Because uh, when I was asked to lecture on this a few months ago, to a chamber of commerce here in Japan, they say, okay, how, you, have you, how have you turned your hobby into a business? You're from the nonprofit, but now you're doing this um, and you're sustaining it. So it made me realize, well, actually, here's these five things I've learned and it's now natural for me and it's intuitive. Um, and you know, underneath the rules, I have the five rules, there's actual action plans and mechanisms and devices and systems. And so now I'm starting a, 
uh, a summer session, July 1st, for, um, I've coached a lot of people over the years of how to raise funds. Now I'm going to do this five rule 90 day where I take people through the sequence in group calls plus assignments with the end result being that th they begin by stating what their fundraising goal is, what their project is. I'll take them to the steps, hold them to account, give them advice with the view that at the end of 90 days, they have their first bit of money coming in um, to the account um, mm -hmm. to fund their project, whatever it is. So the Never Too Late Academy is a business. It is one of the way I'm funding my dream, but also the heart is to help the maximum number of people. And on the online you know, learning world, the price points really vary. And you kind of have yeah. to make a choice. Do you go for $10,000 a course and only go for five students? If $50,000 is your goal? Or $50,000 is your goal, do you go for a thousand at was that fifty dollars a course? Yeah, and we've decided, even though it's harder work to get masses coming, because my YouTube channel is only three thousand, and again, I don't want to overemphasize the academy on the channel. Yet we've decided, no, I want to help people like me, and people like me didn't have $10,000 to spend on yeah. coaching, right? So, yeah. So, yeah. I think it's, uh, I think the difference is as well is obviously you're, you're philanthropists. That's what you've done your entire life since you were a kid. And, and even your, you know, your younger years, you come from, um, you know, your dad, your dad was a minister into theology. So yeah, it's, it's how many people can you um, positively influence and that's mm. like the most important thing is rather than a, rather than a price point specifically, I think that would probably play more relevance to you. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. So for example, you've got like the YouTube sailing channel and that is basically going to follow your journey across the Pacific. And then you've got the never too late Academy, which is um, influencing people, training people, coaching people on how they can start to fund I suppose their dreams as well, in a way. Would you say that's right? Yep. So the sailing channel is called Pacific Solo, and it's now been going uh, two and a half years. I'm I'm very small. I'm uh, I have just shy of three thousand um, subscribers at this point. I was advised to grow slow and steady, and just be consistent with getting videos up. So I think I'm at 116 videos. And I do all, in the early days, I had a friend helping me with the editing. I now, it's one of the many things I've had to learn how to edit videos. And it's it's not a cinematographic, you know, I don't have drones. I just use my iPhone. Um, and I've experimented with different approaches, but it's just me and my trials and tribulations, highs and lows. Uh, and then I've started the Never Too Late Academy, which main focus is the website, but the YouTube channel is where we place some of the free piece. So for example, my book, Never Too Late, the subtitle is 10 Tips to Change the Course of Your Life. Well, that's now in video form at the channel and it's free. People can just go 
go watch what those 10 tips are. And recently, uh, in January, I nearly sunk my boat and the Coast Guard had to rescue me. And I was kind of stranded in this remote harbor for a few weeks and uh, had to keep pumping the bilge pump because my dripless seal busted. And I was waiting to be towed to a place to be hauled out. So there I went to a nearby beach and did two things. I went swimming in January, a polar bear swim, which is an annual ritual for me, uh, but also recorded 10 new tips. So I kind of took the tips from years ago and, and new tips. So people can get free stuff on the academy. It's still a very small channel, but it's really just meant to be a window to, to the website. Um, and again, the sailing channel is just me and all my quirkishness uh, trying to achieve this goal. It's, it's interesting, though. I, I was thought of this a few moments ago. You know, with my not-for-profit background and what my natural disposition is in life, like many others, to help others, I get critics coming. The, the, the recent one, his comment on one of my Pacific Solo channels, he spotted I had sponsors and I was asking money to help fund my YouTube channel. And he said, how dare you do that when there's refugees in Ukraine who need that money more? And then he got a lot of likes on that comment. And so I have a practice, I'm small enough still that I respond to all of those and try to engage in conversation. And I said, fair point, I take it. But two things, number one, is fundraising and giving is not a zero sum game. Just because you do this, doesn't mean you can't do that. And secondly, it's not like for like, because Pacific Solo isn't a charity, these sponsors are getting something back. And it turns out the sponsors are actually getting their name on a History Channel TV program too. So that's kind of more than what they paid me. It was just to get signage on the boat and credits on the, on the YouTube episodes. Um, and uh, I years ago, when I wrote my book, one of my first books, and the same weekend, I got a really good review in the Financial Times and a scathing review in the Daily Telegraph was for my chasing the cherry blossom bike ride. And I was just stinging from the Daily Telegraph. And my wife says, Lowell, you write a book, it gets out there. You've got to expect that not everybody's going to like what you do. Mm. And that helped me develop some tough skin. Uh, yeah, for sure. Pro- I mean, if, if you put in anything online, you have to. Um, you know, you have to be prepared for it. I mean, you know, like one thing that not really uh, short of is idiots um and uh, yeah you know like if, if you find it if you're on, on any type of online forum like a facebook or an instagram or something like that or youtube like you get some pretty creative ones on there i don't know who these people are like I, I i i don't personally know anybody in my life or have i ever like associated with anybody who has enough spare time and enough interest to like watch something that somebody has made for free because you don't have to pay for it and then just criticize that person on a human level for doing something that Mm. you wouldn't have done i'm like Mm. who are these people 
I don't know any. They might not be real. Who knows? Um, but yeah, there's, <laughs> there's there's quite a few of them. <laughs> but then you've you've got others who are, you know, the fellow never do laters and uh, I don't know if you've got David David Shee. Have you seen his YouTube channel? He's been on Parlay Revival. Oh yeah, and, he's got a catamaran. He's yeah, he's got a catamaran. He, yeah, 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 he he went to be with uh, Colin McRae just to, because of the whole bulkhead thing. And uh, oh, cool. David, she has become a friend and advisor. And uh, you know, he he calls me. He says, "Man, you got such a tiny channel." Because he's growing his channel to seventeen thousand subscribers in eight months with sixteen yeah, videos. He's cool. done he's done really well. But he says, "Man, I don't know anybody who's gone out and got sponsors." He, so he calls me the sponsorship ninja <laughs> because I'm, ninja. I'm in Japan, <laughs> etc. But again, it's like him. I'm learning from so many other sailors and he and I, I'm kind of coaching him on sponsorship and he's coaching me on how to grow a YouTube channel. Yeah, that's a nice transfer of skills there. That's a good, uh, good trade, the old fashioned way. Um, yeah. Cool. Let's talk about your boat. Um, okay. We haven't spoke about that yet. Uh, what is it, and how did you acquire it? She's a, a Gypsy or Gypsy 402, nice. French. I think there's about 185 of them made, somewhere in that range. She's 1988. She's 40 feet. So it's kind of a, it's called a 402 because it's a, it's a second generation 40 footer. Uh, Gypsy is now owned by Dufour. Um, when I was shopping for a boat, um, I had shortlisted four and I needed the boat to eventually get its way to Tokyo. One of the boats was in Phuket. I went there, hung around with a friend, a boat broker for a week. He took me to a lot of boats and he gave me advice. And he said, Lowell, two things. Number one, there's no perfect boat. And when you see all these other boats, you're going to like this about that one and that about this one. And you'll want a, cons a consolidation and you won't get the perfect boat. Secondly, you'll know the boats for you because it will speak to you. Well, I kind of got that because I kind of felt that with my dog, my border collie. Uh, you know, I was <laughs> looking for a dog. And when, he, when she and I made eye connections, yeah, uh, I yeah, fell in love. And I felt she was saying, take me home. And she and I had great adventures. By the way, she and I rode my, went on a bicycle trip 5,000 kilometers around Japan. I towed her in a trailer. I called it Japan coast to coast, the long way around. Um, so, so I had, so I, I took, I understood what he was saying. So then I was shortlisted four boats. And then Wahine is the name of my boat. Wahine is Hawaiian for woman. It can mean, surfer girl it can mean beautiful women that in different tribes in the south pacific it has different uh, kind, kind of nuances and the first time i saw her i i saw her and i at nemo north i saw her and i in the middle of the ocean nice. and i didn't even know her she was for sale at that time and then I found out she was for sale accidentally and it was owned by a fellow foreigner who was in Malaysia. So I could negotiate in English. And also 
she was at the harbor I needed to be, Yuminoshima, the island of dreams marina, not too far from here. And otherwise there was a year's waiting list. There was a passport 38 in the Philippines I wanted to see, one of Perry's boats, which was really offshore friendly. Uh, there was a, a 40 foot steel hull boat that had already done a solo crossing the Pacific from Canada to Japan, which was in Fukuoka. And I kind of looked at the whole steel versus fiberglass, found that depending who you ask, it's kind of like Windows or Mac, you know, people are of one opinion or the other. Um, so she also happened to be the cheapest. So uh, that's how I bought her. And then immediately gave up my small Tokyo apartment because I my work brought me up here a lot. And so I convinced my wife with the with the numbers that it's slightly cheaper to live on a moored boat than in an apartment by about a hundred dollars a month. And so I moved on her, began the day sale, do the upgrades. Um, then I realized I had legal difficulties having a Japanese registered with boat, a boat in Japan. I realized she was only licensed for five miles offshore. So then I had to jump through hoops to get 20 miles offshore, then, then temporary licenses to go to Okinawa to be further offshore. But I had to get upgrades for that. So I had to get uh, VHF radio. I had to spend $8,000 on a life raft to meet the Japanese standard. I bought a hydrovane, uh, which I fell in love with. Uh, a self-steering mechanism. And so I paid, let me just do a hundred to one in US dollars. I paid $65,000 for her. And I spent that much again in upgrades. Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah. I, I was always told, I was all, always told you're going to need to spend hundred to $130,000 to get an offshore worthy boat in the 38 to 40 foot range. And it's turned out to be that. Yeah, I think if you want all the safety equipment and the redundancies and the technology and all that type of stuff on, yeah, for sure. I think it's worth it. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I like to travel. I wouldn't say I'm particularly, you know, courageous. I'm probably, probably slightly more than a normal person, I'd say at most. Um, but yeah, if I'm crossing oceans, I want everything. And it depends if you're doing it by yourself, you're on a small boat, it doesn't matter that much. But if you're, you know, if you've got your family, if you have kids, um, that's always in the back of mind, you know, like it's, yeah. it's not just necessarily your safety. It's like, okay, if I disappear, what happens to everybody else? Who's like relying on me or needs me to support that type of thing. What type of, um, safety equipment did you, uh, did you install or do upgrades to? Well, I, I had to get, um. First of all, all required safety equipment has to have the Japanese cherry blossom stamp on it. Right, okay. That, that doubles the price. Yeah. But because it's a Japanese vessel, I have to have those bits of equipment. Um, so obviously the life raft, which I said, which is equipped for five and that's offshore. Um, life jackets, uh, the boat is licensed for 16 for within five miles. So I have to have life jackets for 16, but then beyond five miles, it's only licensed for five. So that's why the life raft 
can be five. Um, and then it's certain types of radio for different levels. So I have VHF radio, but I don't have a license for VHF radio in Japan. The exam is in Japanese. I have a Canadian VHF maritime license. Um, so in place of the VHF radio, legally, I can't have it turned on. I do turn it on because it has AIS receiver. Um, but I got a satellite phone from SATCOM, a UK company, they're Iridium. And uh, so the authorities here said, okay, that's, that's, uh, that will replace that requirement. And then I got EPIRBs and, uh, uh, you know, I, I have, I've got different navigation systems. I have predict wind on several devices, including an iPad, iPhone, and the chart plotter. There's the Japanese equivalent of, of Navionics, which is NUPEC. And if you ever cruise Japan, you want to get NUPEC. It's only in Japan. So much more detail than Navionics. Um, and uh, then I subscribe to some other things as well. Uh, and and something and then I'm a member of Bon, which is the boat assistance network in Japan. It's kind of like a an automobile association. They'll come and rescue you, or but it's but it's also kind of Uber because it's all self-driven boat. It's privately owned boats that are in the network. Okay. There's no vessels owned by Bon, and I've been rescued by them once as well. I was towed three hours. Um, and then, then there's all my optional stuff. I've taken out my, I decided not to have kerosene. I mean, yeah, not have kerosene, uh, propane, I should say. So I have a small gas cooker uh, with the camping canisters, which I can use, but I have 500 watts of solar. To me, that's safety equipment. And I have, I, you know, I had the two batteries already. I then installed, I put another two batteries and have a starter in house. I put in Chinese lithium and I had to pull them out after six months. Uh, my house is solar powered as well. So although my house is connected to the grid, it's great. Even when I'm in marinas, I, I don't have to connect to the grid. Nice. Um, so I have ample electrical power. I finally did get the auto helm. It was only the display unit that was busted. Oh, okay. Uh, in the end, and that, but to get the display head, I, I could, I found them in, in the UK, but they wouldn't ship to Japan. Then I found some Dutchman cruising in Thailand, and he made a hobby of repairing these. Uh, that's oh, my right. son who just walked through his apartment. He's uh, he's a licensed captain as well, but uh, sailing boats are a bit too slow for him. So he's he prefers wakeboarding and jet skiing. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah, that a sailboat too slow. Yeah, okay. um, so solar is great. I before I go to Canada, I have to. I don't have a black water tank. It's directly into the sea. So I'm going to change the composting toilet before I make the crossing. So I'm legal yep. when I arrive in Canada. Um, but it's it's a comfortable boat. It's my home. 
Yeah, um, they're really good boats. In in the past couple of marinas I had mine, there was uh, I think there was one a few boats down, um, and then yeah, in one marina was actually one next door to me for a while. Really nice, like very strong, uh, comfortable interior, well built, and uh, yeah, I mean they've been on the water for a while now, and they're, you know they're still around. I think there, there's that formula on sale data, which I forget what they are, but they there's a an equation for offshore versus inshore, and then oh, yeah. also I don't know they work that out a, a comfortability one as well. And I yeah. think if you're and I'm right borderline on the offshore friendly, and some right. people have pointed that out to me. I've enhanced the boat, so I think my numbers have improved. Other sailors have said, that's all bullshit. Just ignore those numbers to begin with. But the Gibsey 402, under European certification back then, is certified for offshore cruising. Oh, yeah. like You can offshore cruise in that. De definitely way more comfortable than like a modern production boat from um, uh, the, what you'd see today. Or, uh, or even from like the mid-2000s as well, definitely more so than that. Um, yeah, it sounds like Japan is the type of place where there's quite a lot of regulations and restrictions and costs for owning a sailboat. I mean, with regards to like the prices of stuff there and what you actually need, Spain is quite similar. Um, they have the most ridiculous rules. They do for a lot of stuff, <laughs> like so sailing is no surprise. Uh, but yeah, it's like if you have a certain boat, you can only go to a certain amount of miles offshore and you need a different license. Oh. So you have to get a different boat. Then you need different safety equipment on. Oh, it's just quite amazing. different from what we're used to in the UK. Because in the UK, you just buy the boat and go sail the boat. Um, you don't need insurance. You don't need a license. <laughs> you don't need anything. They've, they've retained you know, a little bit of uh, freedom on the water where I think Spain is going for the old, um, you know, the old uh, Spanish Armada type of. I was going to uh, say if that if it's on the water, <laughs> it's ours. <laughs> yeah, I mean that—that that was my belief when I bought this boat. I could just sail off into the sunset. So I was shocked and disheartened at first that I couldn't do that, and that is there it, was. Could you not money. register it on a different flag in Japan, or is it like because you're a resident of Japan, it has to have a Japanese flag on it? Is that like a rule that they have? Yeah, so I could do that, and I've investigated that. And one of my video episodes, because I was asked to do it, I actually go through all these options for other okay. people like me who. So, so in this, in the sailing world of Japan, I'm kind of considered now an expert on Japanese regulations for taking a boat offshore. Uh, and also, I don't think there's been any sailor in Japan stopped by the Coast Guard more times than me, including twice <laughs> at sea. Uh, the Coast Guard know me well, and I'm always, my paperwork is always in order. But so the problem is, I'd like to register it under Canadian flag because I'm a Canada Canadian, and that's where I'll be taking the boat. But Canada, that's no problem. I can do that. But Canada requires me to have proof of deregistration in Japan first. Oh, okay. Right. To get deregistration in Japan, I have to do one of two things. I have to disassemble the boat, including taking the engine out, which I'm not going to do. 
Okay. Number two, I have to prove that it's sunk, which I'm not going to do. Or thirdly, I have to export it. But to export it, I have to get an export license. And for that, I have to get it from customs, then take the export license to the regulatory body for my boat. Um, and the customs will only give it to me if I'm within a week of leaving Japanese shores. Yeah. So I'm caught. See you exporting it. Now, my friend Yap from Holland, he bought a boat here, sailed it to Korea, he and then re-registered in Holland. He didn't have to prove deregistration. So there's some, but now that I'm cruising Japan for the next year, and I'm I'm now in obligation to History Channel for six more episodes. Um, it's helpful having a Japanese registered boat. Because yeah, a foreign sure. registered boat has its problems in Japan. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. Yeah, it's a similar thing in Spain from that perspective as well. Like, um, I won't say the majority, but a lot of Spanish people who have sailboats in Spain, they won't register the boat in Spain. They're doing, like, Poland is quite popular now. Like, I, I see a lot of Polish flags popping up on sailboats. Um, mm. But, yeah, it's just because they make it so difficult like the amount of tests and checks they've got like in the UK, we have a thing called an MOT. Don't know what it stands for, but yeah. you basically take your car somewhere and they tell you that it's not falling to bits. Um, they've got one of those for boats, but like the, the lists of stuff you need to get done is just insane. Be people, I, I calculated it with my previous boat and um, I was going to have to spend like three grand just to get it through. And the boat was fine. Right. I was like, right. I either do that or I just spend 20 pound and put a British flag on it. And then that's it. So I was like, okay. So where's your boat? I sold it last week. Um, okay. Oh, so, congratulations. Oh, yeah, actually, one yeah, of the happiest so, days, they say. <laughs> uh, you know, like a lot of people have said that. Um, and I'm not quite sure how I feel about it. I, I, okay. I didn't want to sell it till the end of the year. Um, next year, we're cruising full time. At the moment, we're finishing renovating the last house that we're living in now and then once that's sold we're going to go cruising full time um but a guy i was talking to online he was just a really really nice person um just great personality lovely wife and they had like a three-year-old kid uh, they bought a similar boat to what i had before and then they had a bad experience of it the hull was like destroyed with osmosis um so they had to spend a lot of money fixing it and covid they kind of got negative vibes from it so they just wanted to sell it and get a newer one which was what i had and um yeah i didn't really want to sell it but then i met them and i was like oh they're so nice and they've got such a cute kid like i think they should have it <laughs> so i was like the, the, the timing is probably okay because i'm going to be too busy this year anyway doing construction work right. and um yeah i was like you know let's let these guys really want it they want to go sailing on it and they can commit to it full time. So let's let's go for it. So yeah, they took it last week. There's a few bits. There's, there was a few um, not not repairs, but you know, just little bits that I wanted to make sure were done. So uh, they bought the boat, and I said, okay, have it. But I'm going to make sure these uh, modifications are made, and I'm still hand managing a few contractors to get the stuff done. Uh, so yeah, boatless. Uh, got a lot of sailing plans this year, though. Doing the um, yacht master in October. Okay, good for you. Yeah, when we uh, cruise, we're going to do uh, charters. We're going to bring people on board and teach them how to sail and live aboard and that type of stuff. So, uh, yeah, I need to get my yacht master 
and then the commercial endorsements, which is, uh, yeah, it's going to take a while, but um, yeah, it's good. I think to have that certificate or license, whatever you want to call it, I think it's pretty much the um, the best one you can get in terms right. of sailing. So yeah, it'd be a nice achievement. And, and what boat do you have your eyes on? It's called the Geno 54 DS. Okay. Okay. Um, wow. Yeah, it's nice. It's kind of, uh, right. I mean, this is my opinion. It's not facts. I think it's facts. Uh, that's why it's my opinion. Um, I think it's like the last boat Geno made that was really kind of ocean worthy and somewhat designed to be offshore as well. Um, they followed the same path as like what most production companies have to make boats. You know, they've gone full on. It needs to be nice on the inside and maybe not that much consideration to kind of actually cross an ocean or not. And I speak to a few people who work for Geno who've also confirmed this. <laughs> so right. it's, uh, it's, I'm not making it up. Um, so yeah, it's a good boat. It's, it can, it's comfortable offshore. I think it weighs about 22 tons when it's filled up. Right. So it's got a, good weight behind it it's fast so um yeah looking forward to getting that one and then doing the diy projects on it that's what i enjoy the most i like working on so you're a, you're a diy guy you're a builder carpenter electrician yeah since being really young i built right. a i built a house with my dad when i was 16 um right he, he did more than me uh, because he's <laughs> a obviously better at building houses uh, than I was when I was 16 years old. But I started learning when I did that. And uh, yeah, built built a bunch since, renovated a bunch of properties, doing a lot of civil work on the place that we're in now. Um, and yeah, like my general philosophy is if you can do it yourself, do it yourself. It's not a case of I don't want to pay someone, it's that I want to learn. So, right. and especially on a boat, like you need to know how to take the engine apart. So if you're in the middle of the ocean and something goes wrong with the engine, you can't call someone, you know? Yeah. However, if you have the knowledge, you can get yourself out of a pretty bad situation. So it's necessary. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That, with every repair I've had so far and breakdown, uh, it's, you know, I've learned. And uh, yeah, yeah. But I still feel like I'm, particularly when it comes to diesel engines, I know they're simple, but with every problem, then I, I discover other things. And so I'm changing the impeller right now and the plate behind the impeller, et cetera. But that dripless seal was a huge surprise to me. Well, they're never dripless for a start. Well, <laughs> exactly. most starts anyway. Uh, and then I, then I had the Windows Mac argument going on again with other sailors saying, you know, dripless or stuffing box dripless or stuff you know pss or stuffing box yeah and i decided to stick with pss uh, yeah but uh, when it's when it dri when it breaks it can be catastrophic i know as it w nearly was with me water was coming up over the floorboards after my i woke it up from an afternoon nap and yeah you know, I spoke to a, there's a guy who has a uh, charter company here in Spain, and he was, um, I don't know if it was the Army or the Navy he was in, probably the Navy, actually. Um, and uh, he had a little remedy for that, for boats that have a stuffing, uh, um, sorry, dripless seals as uh, stern glands. Uh, attach another one to the propeller, uh, sorry, to the propeller shaft. So he has one on there. 
Uh, he has another one already on, which he's then put on and attached to it before he's put the propeller shaft in the coupling. And um, he said he's, he's used it twice. Um, so if a problem occurs with the one that is on there, just get a Stanley knife, slice it, push the other one down. Um, you'll get a bit of water coming in, um, but you've got it already attached. You don't need to start messing around with a propeller shaft and bolts and screws and all that type oh, okay. of stuff when you're in the water. You can do that from... You can do that while on the water. Yeah, okay. You can do that while it's on the water. Um, and then you've got, your, you've got your redundancy there. So if it starts leaking or something happens with it, just slice it off. You'll have to put, you know, a bit of elbow grease into it. You'll have to throw some weight behind there. I imagine there'll be a bit of water coming in. Um, but it's a, it's a backup. It's, I thought it sounded like a really good idea. Yeah. Yeah, okay. And you can still use your... You still start your motor, your engine. Yeah, yeah, no problem. Yeah, yeah. so just uh, I think he put it. I think he wrapped some duct tape around it just so it wasn't the thing wasn't right. actually spinning on the propeller shaft. Um, but uh, yeah, that's that sounds like a really good idea. Um, right. But yeah, they only if your propeller shaft is slightly bent, which like a lot of propeller shafts are slightly bent a little bit. You know, by e even less than a millimeter, it can it can cause a wobble, which can then make the drip seal not work really well um so uh yeah it's good to have like a redundancy there but i think a stuffing box is the best i know people have probably got different opinions about this but like you, you see boats that are 50 years old and they've got the original stuffing boxes still on there and they work yeah um yeah so i don't know maybe the old school way is still the best way well my offshore sailor friends say or most of them say yes <clears throat> yeah the, the, yeah the stuffing only... box is the best yeah, the only thing which I didn't like about it, it was just the uh, the grease part. Every time, you know, well, not every time. I think I needed to change the um, the fabric that's inside them. I can't remember what that's called. The rope that you need to cut and yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, the actual yeah. stuffing box. Uh, but yeah, I was having to go down there all the time and like you know top the grease up, and it was like I just couldn't be bothered lifting up the board anymore. So I was like, I'm going to put a dripless seal on there, and then I've got no drips and no grease. And then I put it on and I have drips. <laughs> so a bit annoying. Um, but all right. So listen, I think just just to direct everybody to where they need to be directed to, what's the best way to find out about your academy and your journey? You've got the YouTube, which is Solo Pacific. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So from the sailing point of view, um, I my my name is Pacific Solo. So whether it's Pacific Solo YouTube channel, Pacific Solo uh, website.com, Pacific Solo Instagram, uh, uh, Facebook, etc. Then alongside that, a derivative of that is the Never Too Late Academy. And again, it's the same. I've got a channel, Never Too Late Academy, website, Instagram, uh, Facebook, etc. And we met through the... Never Too Late Academy Instagram account yep. uh, that you found us. So, so I either way, if, if on the sailing front, it's specific solo. If you're interested in, you know, seeing what I'm doing, resources and joining my community of fellow Never Too Laters, and some of them are younger people, and their theme is it's never too late to start early. <laughs> right. I, I kind of look at you in that that regard. Uh, then. Uh, yeah, that, that's the way. And yeah, as far as the books go, it's my name, Lowell Shepherd. And again, I'm, I'm not in the business of flogging books. So uh, 
Uh, no, it's good. Yeah. I get a small royalty check every year, enough to take my wife out to dinner. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, I'll put the uh, I'll put some links in the description so people can uh, be directed to that uh, that stuff. And listen, thanks for uh, thanks for taking the time out and speaking to me. Um, you're a very interesting person. You've had a life that seems like it's been well fulfilled, and you've you've obviously touched a lot of people, improved of improved a lot of other people's lives as well, uh, which is amazing. So. Um, on behalf of humanity, thank you. Um, and yeah, I think we need more people like you around. It would be a better place. It's been an honor. Um, and I've watched some of your other podcasts. We'll watch more. And thank you for doing what you're doing. Um, I appreciate it. There's not much long form out there anymore, particularly in the sailing world. I know there's some more podcasts, but thank you. It's, it's been a treat for me.